and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, a podcast where we talk about uh, plant science and the things that plants are doing in their daily lives, which is a brilliant segue to talk about what Yoram has been up to in his daily life. <laughs> I wish I was just a plant that's photosynthesizing and not moving about and not stressing. Although I think from all of the papers that we've... Well, firstly, like... If you if you work out how to fix carbon, then then you get to do that. Like <laughs> you haven't earned that right. You you can't do that yet. <laughs> yeah, and from all the papers that we read, we know that plants are often quite stressed. Like they are by far not not stressed. Um, but yeah, I've been I've been busy this week. Like at the end of this week, we're going on holidays. But as it is. Um, before you have holidays, you have like a very stressful period of stuff that has to be done before the holidays. And um, that's what I'm in right now. And I made it, of course, I made it myself hard, uh, more difficult because first of all, I decided to go on holidays in a van that I have to build first so that we can actually <laughs> use it. So, But that's almost done for, for this short trip. Um, but then there is also like work stuff where I volunteered myself to do like a little bit extra. So uh, instead of just having a retreat where I'm just like a, a passive observer, I'm having an active role in it. So I have to prepare that. And then today um, we had a film crew in our garden um, for a TV program for um, like a professional film crew because I did this. I think I talked about this also in a podcast last year. We had this like uh, a wildlife camera in the garden where we were shooting pictures of like the squirrels and foxes and stuff that came to our garden. And as sort of a follow up of this whole project, they're doing now a short thing on TV about the whole science of it and everything. And they were looking for people who um, who took part and who are willing to talk about it in front of a camera. And because I'm a narcissist and would like to be in front of cameras <laughs> all the time, obviously I said yes. And obviously it had to be done this week. Um, I I was literally just thinking, how does Yarm always like, how do these things always come to your arm? Like, how does how does he find these? And it's like, ah, <laughs> because I'm an assist, it had to happen. Now I see. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, somebody's cool. just like putting out the option of me being in front pick of me, a camera. Pick me, and, pick me, and, pick me. Yeah, I want people to, to watch me and listen to me all the time. It was fun. It was like three people, um, like a cameraman, um, uh, a director slash sound guy, and uh, they had like a... Um, uh, was it like in German? It's called a volunteerin, um, sort of somebody who's doing that for their professional education. Um, shows he's so, sort of intern, yeah, but sort of more advanced than intern. It's like it's your beginning of a journalist career, but it's like you have the experience, but we're still not going to pay you. Is that what it's like? Is volunteering? Does that mean sounds like a volunteer, right? Like, yeah, pretty much. I think, but today there's like at least a little bit of money involved, but yeah, severely intern. underpaid. Like somebody who finished their studies and then has to work for less than minimum wage for another three to six months before they can get like an actual job that actually would pay pay the bills. Shout out to all the master's students and grad students out there. <laughs> exactly. But it was fun. And there were like uh, we, there was like a whole family set up. So we were like frolicking around the garden and they were shooting us um, talking about the plants that we have uh, and where to put the camera. We were pretty much faking the whole project again with like looking for a spot, putting it up, take, downloading the pictures, analyzing them, all of this stuff that we have done like six months ago. We were pretend doing it again today. Um, but yeah, I just like, I found it still enjoy, uh, uh, enjoyable uh, and it was a good 
opportunity for me to really deep clean my house because when it's on TV, you want it to be pretty. Or they came inside your house. We thought they might, but they didn't in the end because the weather was nice <laughs> enough outside. So we cleaned our they house for nothing. You. Now we live in like a clean house like some idiots. Ugh, gross. Yes. What have you been up to? Uh, speaking of living in a house, I am currently living in someone's house that is not my own house because I am cat sitting. So if you hear screaming cries in the background, that is not a baby that I have spontaneously created. It is in fact a cat <laughs> that is angry at me because I'm not paying enough attention to it. So the the cat has very cleverly already made several announcements on Zoom calls. Like he has very good I don't know if it's comic timing or if he is also just a narcissist like you, but he just sort of pops up every time I have a Zoom call. He's like, hello, and starts like screaming at the screen and just, yeah, it's beautiful. I'm sure he'll come back at some point and start screaming. So that's <laughs> what sure you're hearing. It. It's a real life cat. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, because before when you had a cat, the cat was very like silent and uh, far away, right? And now you have sort of the opposite. Yeah, my ex-housemate had a cat, but it was very, very timid. It was always very anxious and it, it wasn't really a talker and it wasn't really a come up to you. And this one is like, come jump on you, like wants attention. <laughs> it, it, it's a rescue cat and it lived with um, kids before, I think. So it really likes that kind of quite rough handling <laughs> I guess, yeah. Mm. It's something my cats are still getting used to. They're still not the biggest fan of the child. Um, because although he got a lot gentler now, the cats don't know that he learned and are still afraid of equipment. But they're still faster than him, right? Like, yeah, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah. So soon he will outpace them and then they'll just have to get used to it. I think that's <laughs> yes. sort of the circle yeah. of life somehow. By now, they still, like, get away very quickly. Um, but... I think with time, I will realize that he can also feed them and also cuddle them. And then they will realize that he has value in their eyes. It's not just like some annoying creature that like pulls on their tails and grabs the fur um, like he did like a year ago. The only other real like thing that I have to announce, I mean, life is getting a little bit back to normal now. So it's, things are kind of, you know, becoming social, but not quite at that stage where there's full on accounts and activities um, in London. You know, it's getting there. The, the most important other thing I have to announce for this month is that this week is that I found out that a thing called a Sunda flying lemur exists. And I really would encourage you guys to all, like, again, take a little bit of time. I, I know I always do this. I know it's not a visual medium, but just like take a little bit of spare time, go to Google Images and, and put in this Sunda flying lemur. It's not a lemur as it turns out. Um, it's like a colugo, which is a slightly different animal, I believe. But it basically um, looks like a sloth and a bat had a love child, and it's it knows it knows that it knows that that's how it looks, and yeah, it sort of clings to a tree upside down like a sloth, but it's quite small and has like webbing like a bat and these big googly eyes, and it's just it's very impressive, I would say how. <laughs> How nature yes. throws out these ridiculous animals and, you know, that just shouldn't exist. And that's... <laughs> yeah. I've, like I've spent weird, a lot of hours looking at that, to be honest. It's like a weird paraglider squirrel thing, but like more intense than the flying squirrels that have like a little bit of webbing. This one is like like all all wing. 
You know, there's that thing where like sometimes something just gives you joy and you can't really explain the joy, but you can come back to it time and time again and it still gives you the joy. And like most commonly that's with some sort of music. So you have this song that you just want to listen to over and over again. Um, we also had some videos when we went through our PhD and whenever we had like really hard times, there was one video that was just a bird like doing a mating dance. And then like <laughs> our friend and I would like dance as a bird. And then there was another video of like, a cat just being a jerk and like knocking things off the table and again like then we would be the cat and knock things off the table um and that was like something that always brought joy in the very hard times and i think i think this might be the new thing i think the sunda flying lima his little derpy face might just be the next joy bringer it's incredibly derpy it's <laughs> he's so derpy but also look at his little flanks like he has this kind of um striated patterning that is like brown and then green and it it looks like the bark and it looks he's yeah. trying to be a tree right like he's trying yeah. to camouflage and honestly if he wasn't derpily staring at the photographer you probably wouldn't look at him so much i mean he's not he's not very well camouflaged but it's like it doesn't look much like a creature except for his derp face <laughs> it's really great we'll put a picture as to chapter art it's just incredible incredibly derpy cartoonish face um please please check this out and enjoy yourself it you'll you'll have a good time shall we talk about plants now no, when I want to look at this lemur some more. <laughs> it makes me so happy. You can do that while I n- narrate some plant stuff. My favorite plant. And um, this week uh, I found a favorite plant that is very smart, clever, and intelligent. Um, it's a plant that's proposed to be the first eusocial um, plant. And the plant that I'm talking about is the staghorn fern. It's also called the elkhorn fern, uh, Platycerium bifurcatum. Uh, And it's a fern that's uh, common to the southeast Pacific area. So I hope I got that right. Like the New Zealand, Australia, Indonesia, uh, Java, and um, the islands there is where you find this fern. But these are also not completely rare um, houseplants. Like people have yeah. them and they sort of mount them in their house, on, like on a wall or something. Yeah, they're very, very common ornamental plants. Um, as long as you can keep the temperatures above five degrees, they can grow very happily um, indoors or even outdoors if you never have like colder temperatures than that. Um, they grow in the rainforest, which explains why they are so keen on having it like um, nice and warm and no freezing temperatures. And um, they are proposed to be the first plants that show a type of primitive social intelligence. And um, what researchers did is they found that in the wild, these these ferns, they would glow, uh, grow in these big clusters. They, would, they are, um, uh, what's the word again, when they grow on other plants, uh, something fights. Uh, uh, epiphytes. Epiphytes, exactly. Thank you. They're epiphytes, so they grow on on top of other plants, but not like parasites. They would take leach sort of the the nutrients from the host plant. They would just use them instead of growing in soil. They would grow on the bark of some other tree, for example. And these ferns, they would always grow in clusters. And within these clusters, you can distinguish two different types of ferns. 
Um, you can find sort of waxy um, uh, ferns that have like strap-like fronds. So fronds is what you call the leaf in a fern, but because of mm -hmm. biology, it's not really a leaf. It's a frond. And um, so there's this waxy type of frond uh, on the outside, sort of like a ring. And then you have disc-shaped brown uh, fronds in the center. They are very spongy and like a nest. So they're called. So that's why the first type is called the strap fronds, and the center part is called the nest fronds. And the way they are set up is that the, f the ferns on the outside they can deflect water towards the middle, where then the the soaky, spongy um, nest fronds can soak up the water and and use it very efficiently. And the interesting thing about this is that both of these types are the same species. They sampled like 10 different clusters and in eight out of these 10 clusters, they all of them were genetically identical. So they were all clones of one another. Sorry, but there's, these are actually individual plants, not just different like leaf types on a yeah, plant. Exactly. They're, they're okay. Uh-huh. They're individual different plants. Um, but they are like their root network is connected. That's why it's also an advantage for sort of the, the strap fronts to be part of the system because they direct the water to the spongy type and then the spongy type can redistribute the water through the roots to all of the ferns in the cluster. Um, so this leads to um, a division in labor and that makes it um, a social group. And this is this uh, process is called eusocial and it's not like a proper like what we would call social in like mammals or or like in humans for example that's why it's you social it's like a one of the most primitive types of social interaction between organisms um, there's like certain insects and crustacean societies that work like that for example termites um, or and there's like two mammal species that do that as well mole rats um, they are very like well known for being um, like living in a hive together although they like mammals they live like an ant colony would um, with like specific roles within the colony and now these ferns seem to be the first plants that were shown to have such a behavior they they are they are sharing the work in terms of reproduction as well so the the nest and the strap fronts they have different abilities to be uh, reproductive and um they yeah they they share the work in terms of water collection in terms of uh, division and now they're actually researchers are actually looking into um understanding this better how does this work like they are now for example taking a front from the center from the like a nest front like a disc shaped spongy type and transplant this into another colony in a different position to see can they change? Do they adapt? Like, at what point is it decided what role they will play within the set setup? And also, like, when you have them at home in the, on a mental stage, they don't show this behavior. They only show this when they're growing, like, in the location in such a colony that they develop into these two different kinds of, of fern, which makes it really interesting to study this now and figure out what's going on there. But I imagine also quite challenging but wait, my my staghorn I have at home does have this kind of backing piece. So it's got like a mm -hmm. a round disc and then it's got these more leafy looking bits. And I assumed that was what that what you were talking about just now. Mm -hmm. Is that Well, does it mean that like each of the the leaves that I'm seeing is actually an individual plant? Or I mean I guess 
the the leafy plants can still have multiple leaves or fronds per plant. So like, what? I, like, does this mean that my staghorn basically won't get leafier? <laughs> that's a good Unless question. Unless I get more plants, I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, in the article that I read, they're just saying that the, you usually don't see this colony behavior in ornamental plants, but it could be that in like some cases you sort of get the split between individuals on the same, like growing together in the same way. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it could, if it, if it would have more, more, um, if it had a chance to to build more fronds, because um, from the pictures that I found, they can be quite leafy or quite frondy. Um, so I imagine that not all individual fronds are individual plants. But um, yeah, I don't know. I I think there will be a difference between sort of the them in the wild and them. Uh, growing uh, as ornamental plants again we will also put like a, a picture in in the chapter art right now so you can see like this this colony cluster with like the brown disc shaped fronts in the center and then you have sort of the all of the strap fronts growing out of it like weird also i feel like realistically food. my my spongy disc front started off greener when i got it from the shop and it's now gone brown and i just assumed that my my fun wasn't very happy um but the ones in the picture they all look kind of brown like a lot of them are quite brown so maybe they just mature to a nice spongy brown color yeah maybe you you found the right conditions that they start forming a colony have i already killed some staghorn ferns in the past definitely yes (laughs) definitely yeah (laughs) I mounted them, and then, like, the problem with mounting them is you have to take a lot more effort to, like, take them off the wall and soak them a little bit and then let them drip dry and then put them back on the wall. So I just couldn't be bothered doing that. <laughs> you wanted them pretty on the wall, but you didn't want to the commitment. Yeah, in the experiment where you don't water the plants, the plant dies <laughs> in the end. Who knew? Yeah, yeah. But I wonder if you can recreate this um, colony in the greenhouse or in the lab in a way that you can study it more easily because right now i think they have to go um they did the research in new zealand so they have to go in a wild find these colonies and then do the experiments like on location which is always a little bit more challenging than they'll find that they can like trigger it with some hormones or something right like this will be quite like genetic signal or just like Throw some ABA at it and it'll be fine. She'll be right. Throw some ABA on it. <laughs> some it'll oxen. Get some nice spongy fronds. Oxen yeah. does everything. Yeah, so oxen that's it. Oxen does everything. <laughs> that's the stack fern. Diversity in the class. So the scientist I want to talk about today is someone who Yaron will already be familiar with. Um, and she's also not specifically a plant scientist in the way of being a botanist or a molecular biologist. She is, in fact, a historian and a historian of medicine and science, but she has a focus on plants, specifically on medicinal plants. Um, And the reason Yoram is already familiar with who this is is because she is the author of the book that we read for our other podcast, The Plant Book Club. If you don't are familiar with that already, as the name suggests, it's a book club where we read books about plants. Um, and yeah, the, the book we read is called Bitter Roots, The Search for Healing Plants in Africa. And the name of the scientist is Abena Dove Oseo Asare. 
and she is a um, doctor. She is an associate professor at um, the University of Texas at Oxen. She, she previously um, received her PhD from the Department of History at Harvard, and then she went on to study these medicinal plants with a focus on Africa. And the book uh, was published in 2014, and we just read it. It's really amazing. It basically details lots of different plants that um, have become have. Yeah, been adapted for use in medicine recently by scientists, like in the scientific context, um, more specifically usually by Western scientists, but sort of um, discussing how these plants have been used in the past and this really complex ethical issue of who has ownership of the plants, um, which groups have ownership, um, who has the knowledge not only of the plants themselves but of their specific medicinal ba- value and what this means, um, how the use of language, you know, using scientific language or even using written language versus spoken language is used as an argument to legitimize legal claims of, um, you know, plant qualities or, or, yeah, products, what eventually becomes medicinal products. Um, so it's it's a really great book. It was It's very dense. It has a lot of information, a lot of history, and a lot of these kind of questions, um, but really fascinating. And, and in the book, she goes through, I think, six different plants, which um, have different uses for a range of things. And I want to just pull out one example that I found really interesting. So in one of the earlier chapters, she talks about uh, grains of paradise, which is a plant product that is used for love. So chapter two is called Take Grains of Paradise for Love. And I found this really, really interesting because the journey through the chapter starts off with talking about how these grains of paradise have been long related to um, being an aphrodisiac, basically, you know, encouraging a desire for lovemaking in both women, but um, also men, and have then been developed sort of as a pill form that can be taken um, to get and sustain erections in men. So she sort of takes you through this journey. And then at one point, it switches over and she starts talking about how, well, actually, there's also a lot of knowledge that has linked to using grains of paradise for different purposes, specifically for women in the context of menstruation, in the context of childbirth and recovery from that. And this is a whole completely different angle. And what I found really fascinating about the storytelling is that there was some, like, so she's a very skilled researcher. It becomes very clear throughout the book that she is able to get points of view, information, not not only just like diving through the literature, um, you know, in this digital but also physical way, but also her, her skills at interviewing and getting access to, to people and points of view that have not like commonly been sort of in like, a, that, you know, are harder to get access to. So she's very skilled, but it becomes really clear that depending on who she's talking to she's sort of getting a little bit of different information so she talks about this experience with the the grandmother of her husband and she's asking what these grains of paradise do and the grandma is a little bit like tee hee hee I don't remember you'll have to ask like um a friend or a nurse um who's associated and when she talks to the nurse it's like oh yeah like 
and and she gets here she's like grandma kind of knows but grandma doesn't want to tell me what's happening and the reason is because for grandma like it's associated with like men getting an erection and it was a bit inappropriate to tell her like her grandson's wife about this function but then later on when she's actually i think in ghana and she's interviewing people she sort of has the opposite where because she's a woman and a married woman at that when she's talking to like random sort of random men but like male healers or or, um, herbal experts on the street they don't feel very comfortable with mentioning like another side of it so they might just like only mention the um the menstrual side but not the the erection side so there's like these kind of different what people are willing to share is a little bit different not only based on their knowledge but also based on her identity so one thing i really appreciate that was a very long way of saying that but one thing i really appreciated is that in the introduction of the book um one of the first things she discusses is how important her own identity as a researcher was in in getting this book so i think the the sentence that i really like starts off with um Although many historians do not spend much time considering how their gender and appearance affect the interview pro- for performance, my positionality had an impact on the course of my research, and I would be remiss not to mention my own status as a multi-ethnic historian of science. So she discusses how, depending on which name she uses, she might get different um approaches from people by basically being sort of recognized as being more local and therefore more trustworthy. Um, because of her her marriage status, but also because her husband comes from a different um, ethnic group, giving her a last name that has like a a link to a different group of people. She would also get, um, you know, more links or or different relationships with people based on that. Um, So all of these mixes, um, like a, a mixture of like European context, even she mentions the fact that at the time that she was doing the research, Barack Obama was a really big thing. And just the fact that her name was Abena and licks, mixing that with like somebody coming from the US and Obama and her father being gone and her her mother American, this was sort of like for them, sort of a signal of like, oh, this is like, in, <laughs> well, not for them, but like for some people, this is like a signal of like, this is like really yeah. interesting. Or like other people saying, oh, you're mixed. I'm also mixed race. Um, but there's like a whole page about all of the different identities that were, are, are all part of her identity, but she could sort of flex into different identities and that gave her access and knowledge that otherwise would not have been possible. And it's something I think about a lot, um, especially in sort of what we consider to be these kind of pure sciences in the lab because we often have this idea that the identity of the science is the scientist is not important and like we've discussed this a little bit before it comes a lot up a lot in Angela Saini's work but it's not always possible to divorce um the scientist and their perspective from the science um, especially historically, but but even now, like if you don't have different types of people, you won't ask different questions, and you won't get the fullness of answers. And one one really obvious example is that for a long time, people studying like humans, just like how how people responded, they they thought, well, you know, women have all these monthly cycles, and that that confuses the data. It creates too much noise in the data because they're going up and down all over the place. So we'll just focus our studies on men. Like that's just men are the clean the clean example you know like the clean data point without the noise and like that is a kind of presumption like audacity that 
happens when you only have male scientists, right? And and this works for, I mean, we've talked about this a lot before, but this works for many other things. So yeah, I really wanted to shout out Abina Dove Aseo Asare, not only because the book was really fascinating, but I, I just appreciated how many different things she got into the book and how she really focused on how identity can shape the results that you get. Um, and yeah, she got results because of her identity and that happens a lot out there in the world. I think that is a super important point. Um, and it's something that I always enjoy when it's mentioned and I miss when it's ignored. Um, it's very common that you have like researchers, often male researchers, um, presenting their work or their life or their career or whatever and completely leaving out their own personal impact on it, like the, the impact of their identity on it. And it becomes this idea of being merit-based or being like driven by their own interest or something like this. When, um, when there is a factor that can't be neglected and that is their own identity and background. So when like, and I'm saying I'm like, I'm reminded of this because next week I'm giving like a sort of career talk to, to young students of life sciences about my journey into science communication. And in my, slides i always have like a slide about like being lucky where to get and being privileged because like as a white man in in germany it's so much easier for me so whenever you see my career path you have to know that what i achieved i did not achieve because i'm so amazing like part of it is because of my own skills but a big part of it is also because like my face my skin the the way I can present myself, um, the identity that I have that opens doors for me that for other people are much harder to open. And so... But I, I think these are actually like almost two separate points as well. So like this is this is a yeah. true point what you're making, but like that is your access to like funding, education, advantage and privilege. That's That in itself is, is a bit different from even a secondary question of not only having the access, but also like asking different questions asking mm -hmm. the right questions because you have a, a broader point of view so i think yeah. there's two things sort of that yeah, are definitely overlapping but separate there yeah no i think my point is what i what i share is the idea that your own identity matters for the work that you do you can't be a neutral observer from the outside like sometimes you have this idea in science that you are sort of outside of it and you're like a neutral lens looking at the world and, and making pure. sense of it um like pure wisdom but no, you're always a human and that has an influence on what you're doing. And so I really appreciate when that is like mentioned, analyzed and and talked about. And I think it's also a nice segue into the next topic um, because it plays a role there as, as well, I think. Before we segue, I just want to quickly again shout out um, that we talked in detail about many aspects of the book on our other podcast, the, the Plump Book Club. So if you want to hear longer rants from me, from Ellen Earhart and from Melissa from at Flora L Design, you can go there and listen to that. Yeah, it's it's not. I haven't edited the episode yet, but it will out, come out soon. But uh, yeah, we'll update the thing with the link and then you can um, follow that or just like a good idea to subscribe to the show because then you won't miss when the episode comes out. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, 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 bias. Today I want to talk about the nearby panelist effect, which is the influence of, um, of the 
relationship between a panelist and here we're talking about like a, a judgment panel that analyzes grant applications and decides whether or not they give people money and um, the applicant's home organization or host organization. So somebody applies to get money for an international or like for a big grant and they have a home organization which is where they are currently at and a host organization is where they want to go. So usually you you work at Institute A and then you write a grant and it's like, look, I want to work at Institute B and focus my research on this specific topic. Please give me money for that. And then you enter that into like a big um, examination and then a number of grants will get funded and others won't get funded. And the nearby panelist effect is an effect that's been studied right now uh, or is, is the focus of a, of a recent study that shows that when people who are on decision-making panel have links to the home or host organization that this might influence the way or like the chance of success of the grants specifically are you, are you surprised by this finding <laughs> there's one there's one thing that i'm surprised uh in this whole story okay, that i will come let's to go later through it all. um so the this is part of a study of the European Research Council grant application process. So the European Research Council is one of the biggest um, uh, funding agencies in in Europe. Um, they give uh, young research grants that are 1.5 million euros. Um, that's roughly 1.8 million US dollars over a period of five years. So that's like a massive capital to start your own group and. Um, yeah, it's, it's what many researchers rely on to really get started with their own independent research career uh, as their own um, pri uh, principal investigators, which is sort of the head position, um, the, the person who comes up with the project and then hires um, postdocs and PhD students and master students to do the research. Um, the bus. And uh, there was a, a study done by Fanden Bessela and Charlie Mom. Um, for who looked at the funding period in 2014 um, when there were 3,200 applicants and uh, 375 out of them received starting grants. So roughly 10 times more people applied for this than got the money in the end. So massive competition, very big uh, system uh, or big process. And they have some um, setups already in 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 their decision-making that make sure that when somebody on the panel has some links to an organization of somebody who's applying, then they can't judge that. So like, let's say you work at Institute A, somebody on a panel is the director of Institute A, then this person can't make a judgment on your um, grant application and somebody else from the panel has to take this work. And this way they separate it so that no people can immediately um, like just... Give, give money to the, the, their own people that they know already. So technically they have that. But then what they found in this study is that um, the their applicants who share a, both a home and a host organization with one panelist, so with somebody on a the panel, um, they have a chance uh, that is 40% higher to receive money uh through this grant process so that's a huge percentage <laughs> that's a huge percentage like a huge huge boost in 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 your success chance um if you see the competition there but this is across all disciplines and it's like the european research council gives out money in like from from humanities to like physics and everything in between like 
all kinds of sciences are represented there. Um, when you split that now into the different disciplines, then if you work in, um, in the life sciences, which is our field, you have an 80% higher chance of getting your grant approved um, if you have a connection through your host organization or home organization to one of the panelists um, and still 40% higher in the humanities. And here's the thing that surprised me no effect that was so observed in physics and engineering. So they seem to be really, in this respect, neutral and, and able to separate themselves, take them uh, from any sort of links to, to their own organizations. And so if you, if you work in physics or engineering and you, you ha apply, it doesn't matter from did, where Did the authors from. of the study have any idea why that was? Did they suggest reasons? No, not really. Um, they looked. They 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 didn't look into why the different disciplines have such a big difference. But they sh they say through that they can show they sort of have an internal control. They say like it's not inherent in the system that you always get this bias. It's like some in some parts you have more bias than in others, which means that you can do it right in the system, but you have to figure out what's different between these two these disciplines. Um, and it's also like limited to different countries and. Here's a part where I'm not at all surprised that Germany is in the list of countries where you have a strong effect um, of panelist um, uh, like re relationship between applicants and the panelists. You have also Finland, Sweden, Italy, the United Kingdom, um, where you see that effect more strongly. And then also, to not at all <laughs> as a surprise for me, it's more pronounced in men than in women. So if you are a male applicant from Germany in the life sciences and you share a, a, re, um, a home or host organization with one of the panelists, your chances are massively higher to get your grant than if you are a woman. <clears throat> yeah, it means that they're more insular, they're more selecting for their own kind, which mm -hmm. is sort of one of the arguments which is always brought up as, why, as to why you need to have diversity at the top because of this selection towards oneself that happens. Yeah. And some say, now, look, these are just better applicants right like if you consider like I'm, I'm making this up now but i'm i'm naming like like a max planck mm -hmm. institute in germany has a big reputation and they say like if you are already like a, a successful postdoc at a max planck research uh, center you might be just a better researcher than somebody from like a small university somewhere in the countryside and uh they looked at that as well and they they used the researchers that looked at this grant uh, um, application process they took a couple of measures for like scientific quality and they could see no link between scientific quality and the success of the um is that prior to receiving the grants or after they received the grants like, Bef like i think before receiving the grants um and they okay. say that like studying um the success after receiving the grants would be a very interesting outcome but they didn't do that yet because i think um, like if the grants were given in 2014 with like all of the lag time until you actually get the research done and the money transferred and then the first results of that, that can like that can take some time. Um, I mean, completely anecdotal, but I have literally had somebody with hiring power say to me that it's very hard to find candidates for a job because nobody else has the caliber of our place of work. Yeah. Like you can't find this caliber in other institutes that's literally has been said to me so that's definitely not science that's an individual experience i had but i am 
not even slightly shocked that people think that your success is driven by your physical location, yeah. which is insane. Yeah, I mean, and I think like the co- yeah. the physical location um, plays then also like into sort of your connection network, the people that you know, um, and uh, so yeah. on. And this is then what they, they but also like quick, very quickly. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but like the things that play into your physical location, like to get into a German institute, like is that easier for a German person? Maybe <laughs> yes. Maybe being born in that country automatically gave you an advantage. That is a yeah. bit concerning. Yeah. And so that they, they related like the connective the connectedness of a person, like based sort of as a, which is related to where their home institution is to their scientific skill. And they could not see that the people who were more connected were also um, performing better in these measurements that they did. But they also acknowledged the authors that um, it's really hard to, find a sort of good statistical measure for scientific quality because impact factor, number of publications, um, conference talks, all of these things have their own internal like... Yeah, and especially like in the shorter term and especially across different disciplines, it's really hard to sort of yeah. see that and predict that for the future. Exactly. So that's why um, you can't, for example, compare like specific disciplines to one another and, and say like, like if you have an impact factor above five, then that's really high quality because that varies greatly between disciplines and so on. But they say, like they, they quote, um, the nearby panelist effect cannot be explained away by pointing at the performance of the applicants. So really it is a um, advantage of knowing the right people bias. and not an yeah. advantage of just being a better researcher who happens to also know the right people. Um, so yeah, and... This is a re- really interesting outcome to optimize the system because, as I said at the beginning, they they say that they ha- they they uh, take precautions um, to make sure that their their judging process is fair. But um, the studies like these are one of the first studies to actually try to evaluate that and figure out if that is true because they sort of set Just up rules in the beginning ban- and then didn't check them if they work. And this this shows that. They don't work perfectly, so there's more. There needs to be improvement to really have a fair and just um, setup there. Just ban all the scientists on the panel who had those, like, who came from those institutes who gave their own institute an advantage. Like, your turns up now and give it to like obscure like universities that have not had that opportunity to have the advantage. Like, <laughs> it's I yeah. Mean, I mean, technically, like. If we stay with like the Max Planck example, which is completely made up, I want to make that clear here. Yeah, but, it's, and it's only because we have the history there, so it's it's made yeah, up just because, because we have this like personal history. It's easier for me to to say um, to to come up with this name, but um, so a Max Planck director can't judge applicants who come from a Max Planck institute, but then somebody else on the same panel who knows the Max Planck director and is, for example, I don't know from Leopoldina, another big research organization. Um, they sort of by proxy think, okay, this is Max Planck, so this must be good because somebody else on this panel is also Max Planck. So it's more complicated than just like avoiding having a Max Planck director judging on Max Planck applicants because they are not allowed to do that already in this current setup. And still you see mm. the the benefit of having... No, no, my, my solution was removing from them from the panel entirely, <laughs> not just like... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm 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 kind of kidding. Um, I'm also kind of not kidding because I do think those panels tend to be like 
overrepresented by people from the same institutes and that yeah. always like even if there's not this advantage just being on that panel in itself is already like a career advantage so I, I do think there is this tendency to be like oh look you went to that fancy big name school mm-hmm. um, in the US or like big name institute in Europe therefore like come be in our panel and and now we see more evidence that like not only is like giving an advantage of being on the panel but also yeah. getting more money back into your yeah. It's all very circle circular, yeah, it's, isn't it? It's it's I acknowledge also that it's like a hard problem to solve. Um like whenever you want to find some sort of measurement of quality, of merit, of how do you decide who to put in a I, panel. Um I think it's hard. I think it's always hard to find like when you're trying to increase diversity, there's always more effort than just going for like the same five old white dudes. Like of mm-hmm. course that's more effort. But I don't think it's so much more effort. And like, if we're doing yeah. a cost-benefit analysis of like, so you have to put like a little bit more effort, and then you're not like exercising this completely unjust and biased system. Like, you know, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. seem like that's a lot of effort. And yeah. there are a lot of scientists in Europe. There are a lot of scientists in Europe, and some of them are in countries that are not the UK, France and Germany. Like as it turns out, Europe has more countries than that. Um <laughs> only like 20 or so more countries in the countries that were bene- like uh, got a benefit from this this bias. Um, but I'm not sure if the so like this is something where you you have these questions about like um quotas to try and prevent these biases happening. So do does this funding do they try to make sure they have equal representation across the countries that they're handing out grants to? Like, is that something that's already happening? Do they have yeah, like, I don't know. yeah, I'm not sure. I, I mean, at least they did have many different people from different countries. Like that's clear yeah. from, from the stats they did. But yeah, that's. Yeah. The countries that I mentioned are not that they're, they're the only countries who got the grants, but that's the countries where you had the biggest effect of yeah. this like nearby panelist. Um, I mean, this is this is a problem. Like, none of us like having quotas. None of us like having affirmative action. We don't want to have to have this. But if you can't play properly and stop like giving the money back to people basically in your own country who are the same as you, like this is what happens. Like, yeah. act like adults. <laughs> and by adults, I mean not adults because adults are the worst. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a very like. Um, currently investigated bias the nearby panelist bias and i think also like a very specific bias but also one that has a very high impact on the life as a scientist and even so this is like a really big funding body but like even if it was a smaller grant like we know in our field that getting one grant getting one scholarship getting one like small thing is often seen as proof that you're worthy and that helps you get the next thing like to get the next grant they look at your cv and they find that original grant so like even if it was like only giving out you know a few thousands of euros that's already yeah. If those biases are built in from the bottom, they accumulate. There's like bioaccumulation across the, the <laughs> strata as you go up. Like it, it really Yeah, it snowballs, right? It's, it's how the system works. It snowballs. Yeah. And therefore it's very, very important to to be aware of this and to to actively tackle that. And yeah, I don't know yet what the outcome is. I mean the study I have to say that um was published um on I think on ResearchGate so far, but isn't um is is currently undergoing um peer review so oh my god you're lead with the fact that it's not peer reviewed (laughs) (laughs) tegan would like to retract all her statements i mean not really but like i do think the peer review process is very important before we report on results honestly i 
I maintain this, I stand by yeah. this, I... Yeah, it's true. Um, it is true. Uh, I'm basing this on like a na nature, like news article, not not science article <gasps> that I, I read on the topic. What you've um, done is you've got you've got dazzled by the fancy nature logo at the top of the page. Yeah, and immediately and... trusted everything that was written there. Yeah, that's the that's the <laughs> um, wait, let me the nearby panelist <laughs> effect um, a bias currently investigated. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. So this week, um, Yoram hasn't had a lot of time to look for fun facts. So instead of having fun facts, we're just going to be describing our favorite Sunda <laughs> flying lima throughout the next hour. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I'll send you a photo <laughs> and then you have to describe his little face. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I I wanted to ask a very quick question, a bit a bit based on mythology. So why would scientists put salt at the bottom of a plant and then check who's eating them? Is it like a recipe? Is the plant like a bit of salad in a plate and then they're checking like if the colleague is liking the salad with seasoning or not? That's when it came up in my head. It's like, this is like salad or with seasoning or not. Um, but it's actually <laughs> a little bit more biologically important than humans being forced to eat their greens and wanting to <laughs> hide the fact that lettuce has no flavor. Um, so sodium, NA, you know, part of salty and ACL, sodium chloride. So sodium is like really, it's an essential element. Animals need it. Um, but animals that only consume plants might not actually get that much sodium because plants are not as interested in accumulating sodium as animals are. And if the soils where the plants grow are poor, they just don't have much sodium in them, the plants can often not accumulate very much of them. So you might be aware of this, that like for some herbivores like cows, you actually need to sort of make salt available for them. You give them these big salt-looking blocks um, at smaller scales. Like Yeah, I know that from goats more. Yeah, move from goats. Um, animals can also like go to puddles and sort of like lick things up. And, you know, there's, there's sort of different ways that these animals can get at plants. Um, but yeah, it's important. And it's also important in the context, again, of, of human movement because, you know, we're humans, we ruin everything. And we've, like, been kind of throwing salt around. Um, so sea levels are rising. That's that's making salt come up a little bit. Um, you know, there's salination in a lot of countries. In Australia, that's a big problem. So they basically took, cut down all the trees and then the, the groundwater, which had a lot of salt, rose up again and just sort of left a lot of salt there. Um, that was like the really big environmental problem in Australia in maybe like the 70s or 80s. And then like we just we just didn't solve it, <laughs> but we decided to deal with like <laughs> like we just got stressed by climate change instead. I think there was like I think there was the ozone layer in between. It was like we were scared by salinity and then we were scared by like salinization of the, of the fields. And then we just like got distracted by worse things that are happening, which was the ozone layer and, like, all of us actually catching on fire when we went outside. And then, like, that's at least kind of healed, so that's a win. Um, let's hope it stays that way. And, and now we're, like, into climate change, I think, and 
the fact that our country's on fire. Anyway, um, <laughs> I got really distracted there. <laughs> yeah, so basically they were kind of... This was a study that was trying to look at whether having more salt in the soils, which ultimately meant that the plants would take up more salt and potentially have higher salt content on the leaf, might actually make those those salady leaves more like preferred by herbivores. Mm-hmm. And and that's what they found. So sodium addition increases leaf herbivory as well as also fungal damage across four different grasslands. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the title of the the paper and yeah herbivores like a salty salad <laughs> i mean i can't blame them um an unsalted salad is really unbearable like you need to to add generous amounts of salt to make this stuff edible and i like eating vegetables and stuff but greens like especially like salad <laughs> I totally greens like eat vegetables and stuff man <laughs> totally okay and then so the, the other quick method i have is in Austria, Austria, um, a bunch of scientists wade into some streams, pick up rocks, and start scrubbing them with toothbrushes. What are they doing? I mean, in, in Germany, we have to stereotype that the Swiss are very clean people, and they, they are the ones that would like, Do you? brush their rocks so they are nice and shiny. Um, but with the Austrians... I've not heard that stereotype. I mean, it's That's it's like a very old-fashioned stereotype. Like there's like the Asterix comics. There's one where they go to Switzerland, and then like the stereotype there. And I mean, it's a like Asterix is a French comic book, mm-hmm. so it must be a stereotype that the French have about the Swiss Swiss people. Um, but anyway, through that, it made its way to Germany, and there they're always cleaning everything constantly. Um, mm-hmm. So, but yeah, but it's Austrians. It's different people also living in the mountains, and. Maybe they're removing some biofilms and checking hey, the effect well on that. Done. But I don't know what they're checking the effect on, like water quality downstream, or are they measuring the biofilm? Is it like are they then taking samples from the toothbrushes yeah. and then checking what is in the biofilm, like algae, bacteria, weird fungi? Perfectly well done. So they were looking at actually specifically the differences in biofilms on the the light side of the rock and the dark side of the rock, which is <laughs> slightly less romantic than the dark side of the moon. Um, and they found that there's sort of these light biofilms and dark biofilms, and they compared the amounts of fatty acids, so like the nutritional oils, and also the types that they had in these um, two different biofilms and the conclusion is basically that the dark biofilms are actually a really high quality resource source um for things like small stream invertebrates that you know uses as as food um so that paper is called the dark side of rocks an underestimated high quality food resource in river ecosystems <laughs> is that like a good survival tactic now that if you are stranded Lick without rocks. food you're licking the dark side of the rocks um, I I was talking about this with my new housemate recently. I had forgotten that Bear Grylls existed, and I am <laughs> now eagerly anticipating the next season where he like starts picking up rocks and licking the underside of them. <laughs> it would not be the most disgusting thing that he's ever done. Um, it also reminds us of um, the talk that we had with Paleo Lorax, who was talking about the fact that you know, paleontologists are kind of famous for going out and licking rocks because by by licking things, you can very easily tell if it's bone or um, 
like Mineral. rock, actually rock. Yeah, and I just saw something in the nature briefing talking about different people. Basically, there's been a conversation at the end of the nature briefing about people um, trying to eat things from their lab. So, you know, you do an experiment on an animal and then after you finish the experiment, you sort of take the rest of the animal home for for eating, which, I mean, some people are like studying the nerves of squid. So you just have to remove this nerve axion, I think. And they're like, well, why would I waste the rest of a good squid? Um, and then in that, there was also somebody mentioning that you can tell the different qualities of like clay versus loam or different sand types also by, by sort of tasting and then, a little bit of a mouthfeel going on. <laughs> I mean, as a also anecdotal um, side note here, we had a or we have a friend um, and had a, a colleague together who was working in like a wildlife um, sanctuary station at one point, and they would have to test animals like when they were found dead in the wild, they would have to test this is this like natural causes or some weird disease that they have to take care of, um, and so very often no disease, just like died of roadkill road kill or something something else and when it was fresh then they had a barbecue <laughs> um so that's what it reminded me of that like why have this go to waste when you can still like cook it and eat it <laughs> i think it also came up in our in our book club book there was a <laughs> one of the scientists he was looking at um Stromanthaline, I think it's called. So it's like it's the poison that's used for poison arrows. Um, and I don't know how to say the correct Latin name of the this thing. Um, and he had some of these poison arrows in his <laughs> yeah. luggage, and he also had his toothbrush in his luggage, and they were all just rattling around. And then at one point, he he brushed his teeth and he noticed that his gums were tingling and he's like, oh, this must have this role in like, so it's involved in like quickening the heart and, you know, dilating things. So he sort of worked that out by sucking on a toothbrush that had been, instead of scrubbing biofilms off rock, had been like scrubbing poison off an arrow. <laughs> um, which is just shocking that more science, I'm sure a lot of scientists did die and nobody just nobody knew why they died yeah, right I mean, like, it's, just... it's like it's one of the like the survivorship bias that we also talked about in the past yeah. like <laughs> the ones that survived they have the cool stories of how they like had the weird tingly feel in their mouth and then they figured something out like the others they they died or they didn't realize that something's going on um so i don't know if that's like a good approach to to science just like put it in your mouth and see what's what's going on i think we're past that stage by now um, I think we have identified a lot of the safe edible substances and new stuff um, is maybe requires a little bit more caution. Although we had like you, you brought this like taste fact like a couple of weeks ago about this like new kind of flavor. So I guess that's also science that you stick in your mouth to figure out what's going on. Um, it was something kumi, right? Yeah. Kokumi. I, I think kokumi was the was the word. My, I, I have a fun fact about, uh, like, pretty much, not, I have another fun fact today, but was the, when I was researching today for stuff, there was only one story. Everywhere I looked, there was one story. And it was that there was only, that we fi found a new organ, and we found it on Arabidopsis, of all places. What? No. Yes. I missed this story, and I also, I'm just going to call bullshit. I just don't think that's possible. <laughs> 
So, um, Arabidopsis <laughs> is our favorite lab rat. We, we wrote about this on the blog. We talked about this countless of times. It's one of the like, most studied plants on the planet because it's such a standard lab organism. But when we grow it in a lab, most of the time we grow it in conditions where it flowers early because we want to get it to the next generation or we're like studying something about it. And when we do that, we have no chance of finding, of seeing this new organ. Um, this new organ that came out is called a cantil or cantil. And it's sort of like a, like perpendicular to the stem at 90 degrees, it just like um, a structure that grows out. And um, this happens when the flowering is delayed when the plant is sort of continuing to, to continuing to grow, but it's waiting for the signal to set flowers. And before it gets that signal, it, it grows these cantils at a, at a 90 degree angle. And then when the flowering signal comes, then on the cantils and on other parts of the plant, flowers emerge. And then this plant is flowering and going through regular um, like flowering process. And the researchers who observed that first 12 years ago, they were like, this must be a weird mutant. They didn't believe mm. that this is a thing that a wild-type Arabidopsis can do. And so they went through like a ton of studies to make sure that this is something that's not just like a weird mutant that suddenly has these side branches, but this is something that you find in wild-type accessions multiple times. And so there's some... Uh, you don't find it in all accessions, so in all genetic varieties of Arabidopsis, but in a significant number... And uh, specifically in ones that don't flower too early, because the accessions that have an early flowering phenotype, they lost the genetic background that is needed to make these cantils. Um, and that's why we didn't really see it, or whenever somebody saw it, they were probably, look, I'm, I'm doing weird stuff to this Arabidopsis plant. The fact that there's like these weird outgrowth is probably due to my experiment and not some not a new organ. Yeah. And it took somebody to really meticulously go through like 12 years of research to make sure that this is an organ, this is something sort of reproducibly reproducibly set in the genome and not some weird side effect of doing experiments on this small weed plant. And yeah, I mean, a new organ, it sounds very very exciting, but when you look at it it's like a little piece uh, a little piece of outgrowth from the stem. So a little bit anticlimactic, but still kind of cool. But it also says that, like, so we have these different sort of accessions or races of, like, um, Arabidopsis we use. And the most famous by far is called Col Zero. That's just the one that most people are using. And it, it's in Col Zero. <laughs> yeah. That's... Yeah. I don't know. I'm... How many... Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah but I mean mm. what are the conditions under which this is it something really special because I've grown Arabidopsis under short day um, a long time ago but I've done it under short day conditions as well and I don't remember any candles but I mean I probably wouldn't have noticed but <laughs> <laughs> is it something where it's like okay first you have to like flash it with blue light and then you have to like turn the lights off and then you have to sing Ave Maria and like is there I just know that um, I didn't read the article because it's behind a paywall and um, they, in the, in the sort of news articles that I read about it, they just say like when flowering is delayed by something. So I don't know if it's like a chemical or if it's like a light condition. I mean, Arabidopsis is, is very easily controlled by the amount of light per day that you give it. Like it grows differently when it gets eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours of light every day. So maybe if you have like a prolonged period 
with um, the light regime that doesn't induce the flowering, then you can push it to make these cantils. Um, but yeah, I don't know exactly what the uh, the conditions are that you need to push it to make these cantils. But it was like it was on all of the plant science blogs and stuff that I read today, and I tried to find other stories, and everybody was like, "New organ, new organ in Arabidopsis," and so now here we are. I'm also talking about I'm it. I'm so this is the most angry I've been by something paywalled in a while because I need to see the pictures, I need to read the methods, I need to like. Realistically, <laughs> I can make a Arabidopsis look a whole lot of weird ways by doing a whole lot of weird things. But, um. I need to know how this is happening and is this a natural thing that happens as far as like it would actually happen in nature? I just, I have questions. Same. Um, it would be good to read a paper, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> right now I... You should write to the authors. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's something for, for the blog and to read up more about it. Um, but yeah, until then, all we know is that there's a new organ in Arabidopsis that nobody knew about. Um, I have a fun fact about sex organs, but specifically about the sex organs of the baobab. Do you know what uh-huh. a baobab is? It's a He's big like- tree, right? It's the one with a big trunk that has um, that stores mm-hmm. water. In yeah. I think central to South Africa is where they're growing, or maybe yeah, I'm stretching my Africa. knowledge. Yeah, I think Southern Africa is correct, and I don't really know how to say that properly. Baobab, baobab. I'm not sure what the yeah. Um, it is, and I'm going to say this even worse, Andersonia digitata, for those of you who are playing in Latin. So like, sorry, like many um, flowering plants, they have both the male and the female reproductive organs um, in one flower. So you've got the male parts, which are kind of the pollen, um, and then you've got the female parts, so that's like the sperm cells, and then you've got the female parts, there's like a, a stigma, so a sticky bit that sort of leads down to ovaries that has the eggs in it. Um, and... Like, a lot of flowering plants have that, kind of the majority of them. And although sometimes they have this thing where even though there's a male and the female in the same flower, the male bits can't really interact with the female bits. Um, They sort of make it impossible to self-pollinate. This can be done either chemically or just by sort of physical positioning of the male bits and the female bits or timing or something like that instead. So um, these baobab plants produce sort of fruits they're big they're oval um they have vitamin c in them they also um yeah it's it's kind of a useful product but weirdly like some baobab trees make a ton of fruits all the time like every year there's just like that that one tree is making a lot of fruits whereas a nearby tree is basically not making any fruits. It's just like not bothering year in, year out. And people haven't really understood why this is. So there've been some studies looking to it. And some people have said that there might be a link between the type of soil and how productive these plants are. And others have said, well, it doesn't look like that's the case. There's actually not a link between land use or soil type or anything else. So it's it's been a little bit unclear why some of the trees are making fruits and the other trees are, are not making fruits. Just as a reminder, when the fruit is forming, that means that you have pollination. So the the female egg has sort of got pollen coming to it, and it's it's swollen up, and so it's kind of the female part being more active because you've got this um, uh, egg development that becomes like the the seed, and then having the fruit around it. Um, 
so there was a recent study that was uh, published by Chetty and colleagues in forest ecology and management, and they were looking into what specific features of these baobabs was making some of them have fruits all the time and some of them not having fruits all the time. And they found that weirdly, while the fruits were technically all bisexual or hermaphrodites, so the, the plants were technically all bisexual or hermaphrodites, meaning they had these male and female parts, some trees had just sort of leaned a bit more male. So they had just decided to put more, across the whole tree, they had decided to put more energy into the male bits. They were making like really good quality pollen there, like fine stuff, strong specimens. Whereas other trees had just sort of leaned a little bit more female and were somehow making slightly more effort to get their female reproductive bits in order. And that was their focus. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's not really clear why that's happening um yeah maybe there's some benefit with with timing or who's around you and getting an advantage for your genes like maybe if there's there's more of the males around you then being a female really means that you're going to get like lots of different genes but I'm, I'm it doesn't really make sense how this has happened across the population um to me um and i don't know if it's largely discussed by the authors um Again, we hit a paywall problem. Um, (laughs) But it's really interesting. And it also um, comes with sort of this problem again for the trees where you've got to make sure then that you're not just conserving baobabs, but that you're making sure that you sort of have both of the types and you're getting sort of the right amount of each of the Mm -hmm. trees if they're leading towards one or other of the genders. Yeah, my uh, final fact for today is about a unique combination uh, of purple and green in a pl- in an organism. So this is the first purple-green organism, which is actually something that my child would like quite a lot. Like purple and green purple are colors green? that he likes, likes a lot. Um, the other day I had to draw something with like purple and green stripes. Um, and it could have been this eukaryote. Um, it's called, it's, it's a ciliate, and I don't, I'm not an animal or eukaryote biologist, so I have no idea uh, what a ciliate something is. Something kind of like a small wormy thing? Yeah, it's called Pseudoblepharisma tenu. And the interesting thing about this is that it has green algae inside, which is, like, not so special. Like, um, this endosymbiosis happens quite often. We talked about the green sea slugs, and there's many other organisms that sort of engulf um, green algae and digest them to various extents. So sometimes they keep them around for very long in a sort of complete form. Sometimes they just keep the chloroplasts, lots of different... Uh, ways there so um, this in itself is not very special Uh, then there's other organisms that engulf um, purple bacteria Mm -hmm. that's also not uh, very special but this is the first organism that has both in them um, that has green algae in it and these uh, purple bacteria and both of these um, uh, endosymbionts they can take light energy and do uh, biochemistry with it the green algae they do photosynthesis the way we know it they create oxygen in the process and the bacteria they have a sulfur based um, organ- um, um, metabolism uh, which also means that they're um, anoxic so they they can't really stand oxygen which um, makes it really a, a weird roommate to a to algae that's creating oxygen mm-hmm. and then having a bacterium that really hates oxygen. But apparently yeah. this eukaryote is found in like a in a sort of overlap niche where both of these systems can exist together and it keeps it separate enough 
inside the eukaryote that is not a problem for the bacteria. And therefore, um, yeah, just like in the, in the Venn diagram of places where algae are happy and places where bacteria are happy and this eukaryote is happy and engulfing these organisms, there's like a little spot where all of them come together. And um, this is now a very interesting thing to study um, to figure out how, how did this happen? How can this these different organisms live together in like a in a functional symbi symbiosis, uh, especially with such a different metabolism between the two. And like looking at the, uh, the microscopy pictures, it's actually, they seem to be physically not so distant from one another. So there must be some sort of protective measures to make sure that the bacteria don't get killed by the oxygen from uh, from the algae. But maybe they like can adjust their metabolism uh, and sort of complement each other. I didn't read the full paper, but um, this one is accessible. Uh, it's called a microbial eukaryote with a unique combination of purple bacteria and green algae as endosymbionts by Sergio uh, Munoz Gomez, uh, Martin Kreutz and Sebastian Hess, um, published in Science Advances. And we're linking that. And it's just like, yeah, I found it really cool to see this like multi-level endosymbiosis of uh, very different organisms. I just like to mention that um, I looked up what a ciliate is and I'm, I'm not clearer on it. Its <laughs> definition is a thing with cilia. <laughs> um, which I feel is I was taught I wasn't allowed to define a word by using the actual word in the definition <laughs> when I was young. It's just a group of protozoans, so like sort of single-celled eukaryotes, um, which at some point have these cilia, so these kind of little hairy things on them. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I would necessarily recognize one if I saw it under a microscope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would call like weird unicellular organism and then be excited that it's purple and green and that would be all I could purple, say Purple, green and, and hairy. It has a little, I mean, purple, yeah. green and hairy is important. And hopefully like beating the little hairs so that it can move. That seems, that seems nice. Mm -hmm. Also, I think we should rename the podcast to I didn't read the full paper. That should just be... <laughs> I mean, it's in the fun fact segment. We we can't be uh, expected to read like full papers for like five different stories. Cat fact. So this is not a cat fact, but it's a crow fact. And we have talked about crows a lot recently on the blog. And I found it originally via IFL Science, but I sort of have then stumbled onto the Wikipedia article. And the concept is anting. Yoram, could you guess what anting would be if it involves crows? And like behaving like ants? Being How would that work? Um, having a crow queen who lays a lot of eggs and then crow drones who take care of them <laughs> and crow workers who manage the sort of the hive and then growing like living together in a big mound in the forest that's I think yeah, what crows are doing it's a bit more literal than that it's you you are a crow and you put ants on yourself um, <laughs> okay. and then you call it anting <laughs> um it's like when, when planking became a thing, when people were like planking and that was somehow supposed to be a thing, but it's like you're you're not doing a thing. 
You're also, just like, like uh, lying down. If anting would be like that, then they would have to pretend to be an ant because people pretended to be a plank. They wouldn't put planks on their body and then be like, "Let's go planking." I have some like hardwood here. Fine, it's it's <laughs> the equivalent of me emerging from lockdown, putting a bra on, and being like, "Look, people, I'm braing." <laughs> exactly. Like, no, Tegan, you're just like being acceptable for society as is currently <laughs> deemed by the patriarchy. Um, <laughs> so, anting is basically when birds and apparently mammals do similar things. It's called self-anointing, which sounds a little bit fancier um but it's so basically like when birds... anno- self-annoying is what i would feel if i would put ants <laughs> in my body yeah so that's the thing um they, they're putting ants in their body they're either sort of trying to pick them up and putting them on their bodies that sounds it's in the wikipedia article it sounds very unrealistic to me i think more commonly they just sort of sit down on an ant's nest um so the bird just sort of squats a bit like really like wiggles himself down and lets ants swarm all over him and apparently this is beneficial because the ants sort of have like formic acid and have sort of other chemicals on them that can act as insecticide remove mites um fungus bacteria other things like that so it's apparently beneficial for the birds based on that I don't really understand what the win for the ants are. Maybe the ants eat the mites. Um, or maybe just a big freaking bird sat on its nest. So it's trying to yeah. deal with that. Yeah, I would imagine that the ants um, are just like in attack mode and try to get rid of the bird. And the bird is like, hey, I'm actually enjoying this. So please go on. Um, yeah, it's it's not super clear. It seems like the birds are deliberately doing it. Also, they're like crow-like birds. So they're very smart. Why would like... If they're doing something, we have to assume they're doing it deliberately with plan and with malicious intent. I think that's that's what we know about crows. Especially malicious um, intent. <laughs> but yeah, it's not sure. Like, does the bird sometimes eat the ant? That seems a bit weird because ants taste awful for all of you who have ever eaten ants. Um, <laughs> some people have said that it's... It's just like human activities that actually have no purpose. (laughs) Like, you know, often when we look at animals, we're like, what's the function? And it's like, you know what? Humans do a lot of stupid things like smoking. (laughs) And that's in the Wikipedia article. Not quite in those words. But yeah, it might just be for (laughs) self-stimulation. So maybe birds achieve pleasure from anting. Um, Again, we we go to massage parlors. So maybe this is like the equivalent of, you know, Mm -hmm. hundreds of tiny feet marching across your back um others say it might be a link to the molting of the birds so like maybe when they have the new feathers come out that's kind of itchy um and the ants sort of help that somehow it seems a bit unclear what is known is that um the birds can not only use ants but they can also use something called garlic snails which i would have assumed was a snail already cooked with garlic but apparently is an actual species um and also things like millipedes caterpillars grasshoppers even wasps which sure um (laughs) cool Well done, birds. So, yeah, that's the thing called anting that birds are doing and we should be doing too, damn it. (laughs) Birds are weird. Birds are so weird. Oh, my goodness. Related behavior similar to anting. Some birds show a habit of picking up cigarette butts, sometimes lit, and rubbing themselves with it. 
that's something that I've read as well. That birds use cigarette butts because the nicotine, um, like, is also an insecticide and um, keeps their 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 nests clean from pests. And that's why they sort of learned or adapted to putting cigarette butts in their nests because that keeps for a cleaner nest and a mild nicotine okay. addiction. Uh, I don't like. I mean, <laughs> I've I've read that somewhere in a probably not trustworthy source, so don't quote me on that. But uh, yeah, again, this plausible. is all from Wikipedia, guys. So like, take what you will from it, but it's an interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, rubbing rubbing oneself with a lit cigarette butt doesn't seem very enjoyable. But, but maybe uh, maybe it looks like rubbing to us, but they're actually like lightly fumigating. Yeah, yeah, it could very well. It's be. like people apply deodorant directly to their skin, like quite. Oh my god! Quite I, intensive force. I've I've read something about I found it so incredibly disgusting. But fumigating oneself to get rid of pests is something that how how I remember this now. Um, apparently, in in North America, there are areas where ticks are becoming extremely prevalent and i've seen a picture of like a um a ear from a moose that had like like a whole stretch of it covered in ticks disgusting disgusting i recently had to remove one tick from my cat i found that already like not a very pleasant uh, experience and then seeing like this entire ear of the moose covered in them and apparently the problem is um f- f- uh, forest fire management because these ticks usually were r- um repeatedly eradicated with um with fire during sort of natural or controlled burnings. Uh, And also um, the burnings made sure that the sort of the undergrowth in the forests was always like fairly fresh and you didn't have like very wet um, old meadows. Um, But because you people are now um, stopping fires from spreading, which has many other benefits, but this leads to like an, an extended growth of these like very wet meadows and because of that, this is a perfect breeding ground for ticks. And then you also don't have the like periodic killing of the ticks and their brood by fire. So this just leads to like a perfect scenario for ticks to to multiply and become now very dangerous. And then like you have all the problems with like ticks carrying disease and so on. So not very nice. And apparently it's something that also um, already indigenous people did knowingly. Like they knew that they would sometimes set fires to land to have like controlled burnings because they knew that would also kill ticks and um, therefore remove these like potentially dangerous parasites. So by our like modern way, different changed ways of living by mitigating these forest fires, um, we are now don't, we're not having the problems anymore of like big burnings but now we have to live with ticks and the problems that arise from that uh and yeah i know that i know that all of god's creatures are beautiful and all that but like what's the purpose of a tick <laughs> i mean food for some other animals but well, I, I guess find them birds also eat ticks i guess incredibly I disgusting guess. creatures incredible like there's hardly anything that i find more disgusting than than a tick or like a picture of a bunch of ticks. a leech yeah, what about leech? those parasites that go inside ears of fish? That's pretty disgusting. Like, oh, like, that's also terrible. Attach yeah. to the gills or like go into the like. I've, I've heard something. The nooks and crannies. Like we're slowly spiraling away from like solid facts and more and more towards things that are just <laughs> a complete. Hearsay. I think we, we probably cut the podcast five minutes ago. <laughs> 
This could I, be like bonus material after the end credits. <laughs> Pre- premium content for our paid uh, For listeners. anyone who like hasn't worked out how to turn their headphones off now yet, they have to just listen to this babble. Yeah. Yeah, I just heard from a parasite that replaces the tongue of a fish or something. And Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's cool, right? That's like, that's Isn't quite it? clever. Nifty. I would say that's nifty. That's the right word. But also very disgusting. Like, to. But then, like, of ha- also of the tongue, fish. Yeah, but the fish sort of just has to deal with that. Like, I'm your tongue now. <laughs> I think the fish starves anyway, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think that it doesn't end well for the fish. Uh, but apparently, the parasite <laughs> really gets does. something out of it. Um, yeah. So have have think, you heard about global warming? Nothing nothing is ending well for the fish. <laughs> I thought that the fish are the big winners, I thought, because they get more space, they get more free real estate by having like more sea. I th- I heard I heard um <laughs> the factual claim that the fish are behind global warming because they want more more uh-huh. Um, real estate. They want more places. Do you know that's actually that's the plot of the Kraken Awakes? There's a John Wyndham novel from a long, long time ago. Um, and like the 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 ships that like, human activity disturbs these big, like basically giant squid monster things. In we don't really know what they look like. I don't think in the bottom of the sea, and they they get grumpy. They start crashing some ships, and then humans retaliate and try to bomb them. And it basically just gets you know worse and worse. And at the end, the Kraken's response is to deliberately melt the ice caps to flood all of land. And I think the the final... So I really love John Wyndham because he doesn't solve things in the end. He sort of is like, well, humans got bested. Now we have to live with it. So the end is like... The Kraken's basically killed a lot of people. A lot of people starved to death because as it turns out, we rely a lot on shipping to get like our food around the country, around the, the world. So a lot of humans die. But the end is like, well... That's kind of probably for the best because the Krakens also took most of our lands. So There's like ten percent of the humans, but also ten percent of the land. So that's just the new normal now. <laughs> and the seas belong to the Krakens now. Cool. <laughs> Fantastic. I really like John Wyndham. He like always has these kind of just slightly depressing endings, but they're much more realistic than this Hollywood movie rendition where somebody's like. They, and now it's solved. They they find like the, the portal the nuke is awesome. that can then reverse time, and then everything's good again. Well, the day of the Triffids is also here. So there's like plants that sort of start attacking people because everybody goes blind from looking at a meteor, and. In, again, in the book, it's just like, well, we've got to just deal with this now. Like, these plants want to kill us. And they, like, in the end, blind people become highly valuable because they can basically see without, you know, having... Like, they're used to not, not seeing. Um, yeah, and then in the movie they made, the solution is you just spray the plants with seawater and they all die. That's so lame. Like, this plant, like, has... It has three legs. It can walk and it has, like, a stingy thing that it's using to, like, murder people. I don't know if it eats them or not, but, like, definitely murder them. And suddenly, like, a little bit of salt water is killing it? Ridiculous. (laughs) Uh, I think we talked about this already before and I googled it before and I was surprised how it's spelled. And um, I put it on my list of things to consume. And um, What are you consuming? Day of the Triffids. Day of the Triffids, but let's see. Anyway, I think with, I think with that we completely lost all credibility in terms of our, our factfulness. Although, like, yeah, but the trivets are kind of—they're actually a type of oil plant. So I think that was a plant fact. <laughs> Good. Um, 
with that, I think we're ending now. And um, if you want to reach out to us, you can reach us on um, social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. Uh, on Instagram and sometimes on Facebook, it's at Plants and Pipettes. That's usually me. And we also have a website where we sometimes blog. Um, that's www.plantsandpipettes.com. And uh, then you can rate us on iTunes and wherever you can rate podcasts and tell your friends about us. That really helps us um, reach more people. Uh, and we have other ways to support us linked at the end of the show notes. And while you're on iTunes and wherever else you get your podcasts, you should also check out our other podcast, which is hosted by Ellen Earhart. And that is called The Plant Book Club. And there we read every month or two a book about plants and sort of discuss what we learned and what we love and hate about it. <laughs> the next book is called The Hidden Life of Trees. And I'm really interested in reading more about that uh, because... <laughs> Tegan is pulling faces because I didn't read the last two books of the Plant Book Club um, or three books maybe even um, it's mostly because I'm just lazy uh, so I mean in fairness you actually have a child and I don't have any responsibility but <laughs> I'm still going to make comments about it loudly whenever I get the chance <laughs> <laughs> or quietly as, as it turns out the, uh, with that I think we're going into a little bit of a summer break we'll be back at the end of July and uh, until then, make sure to check out the Plant Book Club and other cool plant shows. There's also Plant Crimes with a new season. That's also really cool. And Flora L Design also has their yeah. own podcast about different plant species. So there is a lot of really cool plant science content. And then talk to you again soon. Goodbye. Bye.